1: Yesterday, I ate turkey stuffing, cranberries, the real kind, not those jiggly cranberries, mashed potatoes, gravy, carrots, apple pie, blueberry pie, and pumpkin pie. What can I say? I'm a pie guy. But I'm not planning on sitting around today, because today is the last chance to get 50% off of everything at Old Navy, except gift cards, of course. That's right. Old Navy is giving you another reason to believe in this holiday season. 50% off of the entire store. So run to Old Navy today. Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media,
2: news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Six Radio. I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana. Um, tonight uh, my co-host Naomi is off, I think, on the beaches of San Diego enjoying herself with her girls, so she won't be here tonight. but. But I am excited because tonight uh, we have a very special guest on, and, and some of you listeners might be familiar with him, particularly people who trace their roots back to Columbia, Missouri, where where I once lived, and also my guest uh, lived at one time. Uh, um, my guest is Dwayne Bergard. Um, Dwayne is a former U.S. Navy officer. He's a two-time candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives in Missouri. He's also a Uh, self-proclaimed recovering serial entrepreneur. He's started over 15 businesses, and he's an effective and entertaining writer and public speaker. Uh, One of the things, um, he does have a web page where you can access some of his essays, and I'll plug that later, but he's also written in his first novel, so we'll talk a little bit about that today, although it isn't, uh, strictly speaking, a political novel by any means, but it's a a good read. I just finished reading it myself, and so I'm excited to um, let him talk a little bit about that as well as we'll probably discuss some politics for 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 part of the hour as well. But uh, anyways, uh, how are you doing tonight, Dwayne?
0: I'm uh, delighted to be here, Keith. I'm doing great. Thank you very much.
2: Wonderful, and we're happy to have you here. And I'm sure many of the guests that um, or many of the listeners uh, may be familiar with you and and myself. Um, we do we do have one common thread hear that both Dwayne and I have run for the uh, congressional seat in Missouri's ninth congressional district, which no longer exists because of redistricting. Now Missouri only has eight congressional districts, but Dwayne ran in 1992 as an independent and 2006 as the democratic nominee. And in between there in 2002, I ran as a green party nominee. So we have that in common, um, which is just kind of a little bit of trivia for anybody who didn't know that. But uh, um uh, of course, Dwayne's been active on a lot of different uh, uh, projects, both uh, business-wise and political, and uh, rather than me talk about him, maybe you could share a little bit with our listeners about your background or some of the things you've been up to and, and uh, your perspective on that. Sure.
0: Yeah, so uh, as you as you noted, I I spent uh, actually the significant bulk of my uh, adult life in, uh, in Columbia, Missouri, a uh, wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, I now live in, in Tucson. Uh, I, I moved there for, for health reasons a couple of years ago. But I spent uh, after leaving the Navy, I was I was a Navy officer, and uh, which I uh, in which I lived a, a very very interesting life. There is a uh, a curse. Uh, it was, it's, it's basically a curse in, in uh, ancient Chinese, and it's roughly translated as "May you live in interesting times." And uh, I always maintained that at, at some point I, I must have seriously irritated a Chinese person in a previous life because uh, it, it seemed that my my life was a a series of experiences that where the literal fabric of the space-time continuum itself would would hold itself together to the moment where I said I relieve you, sir, and and then really all hell on earth would break loose. And uh, if you if you want to see some of that, uh, Keith mentioned my my blog uh it's duaneburkhard.blogspot.com, and uh you can find stories like how it was that i managed to deal with a riot and a nuclear weapons accident in the same day uh and uh and things of that nature so i have had my uh share of, of fun fun experiences uh when in, in the service of of our great nation and and then went on uh, into business where I've, I've done a bunch of different things. As, as Keith mentioned, I'm a recovering serial entrepreneur. I, I'm trying to stay away from uh, from building new businesses all the time, which is something I did for quite a long time. And uh, they're the sorts of things that just come to me as ideas do. Uh, but I've also had ideas in, in terms of, of writing work. And it was about uh, about a year ago, actually, that my, my wife began to uh, – forcefully insist, shall we say, uh, that I stop talking about the, the characters and, and the things that have been sitting in my head for so many years and, and actually start writing them down. And uh, one of them has is, is become this, this first novel that, that I've got out. And uh, I, I appreciate it. Actually, I guess what I should do now is I should stop and I should ask you, you know, what your thoughts were, and, and then I can kind of talk about the book from there and, and how it evolved and, and how I got from the background I just mentioned to, to this point.
2: Yeah, well, I I certainly enjoyed the book, and I think um, your experience in the military comes through uh, with um, what's in the book in terms of content and the characters. I mean, certainly the characters in the book, many of the people that are uh, military or civilian personnel, I think, are, are sort of maybe archetypes of different composite people probably that you ran into in your, in your daily life, you know, between the type of people that maybe are the sort of overzealous, um, um, arrogant, self-centered people to the ones that are, you know, doing really good jobs serving their country, <laughs> you know, and, right, and their that, mission seriously. And go ahead. Sir. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's right. And I think that's basically it, it's reflective that you're, you're absolutely right that the characters, um, are absolutely reflective of, of, of people and and of those archetypes, and uh, it certainly reflects not just my experience, but I think probably everybody's experience uh, in, in the military and uh, and in life. Uh, actually, and there are some of those characters that are actually based on very specific people, actually. Um, one of the things that I'm a big believer in, uh, for whatever reason, I'm one of those guys that really loves the, the – DVD directors commentary tracks and you know, all this, the special features and extras that come with movies when you buy them, and so after the book, I actually have a, a section in the book that I just called authors' notes, and it's basically my written out you know special extras section, and I actually talk a little bit about that about the the very some of the specific people uh, that um, that are that the some of the characters are based on uh, one of the one of the sort of heroic characters who's actually going to be a common thread in uh, not just this book, uh, Gopto, but in the sequel and in the third book, uh, is based on uh, a friend of mine. Uh, who actually, I even went through ROTC with uh, at, at the University of Missouri years ago, uh, and uh, he was very tragically killed during uh, Operation Desert Storm. And uh, but it, so the character is to some degree not just an affectionate look at at him as a human being, but also um, my sort of uh, fictional extrapolation of the kind of person he would have turned out to, to get to be if he would had the chance to live. And, and there are other people whose characters are, are based on people that I directly worked with and I sort of personified. I think all, all characters, and again, I don't know how other writers do this, but um, to some degree they're sort of amalgams of the different types of people that you have experiences with in your life and the different things that you, that you bump into. And uh, when I wrote the story, I knew what that story was, but because I'd had all those experiences and I know the characters to the degree that I know them, uh, particularly the ones in the military, and, and obviously the, the story is, is very uh, is very military-centric. Um, so what happens is basically I, uh, I, I know what's going to happen in, in a given scene or a part of the book, but I don't have any idea what the characters are going to say. I, but I know who they are. I know them as, as individuals in my head. And so I, I build that sort of environment for that scene. I know the colors of the walls and the, you know, all the different sort of details of that moment. And I put the characters in that in that box, if you will, and I say, okay, uh, go, you know, do do your thing. And to some degree, uh, and, again, I, I don't know how other writers do this, but to some degree what I'm really doing is, is I'm transcribing more than I'm uh, writing. I just kind of let them go and I write down what they tell me when I when I do that. So, uh, But it's obviously quite the shift from having spent most of my uh, adult post-Navy uh, life in both uh, po- politics and, and business. But it's something that really I've always done in that I've always been in business, when I was, you know, working with, uh, with several several Apple computer based businesses uh, and uh, serving on the, the board of directors for a couple different companies and stuff, I've always been a writer. I've always been somebody who's prolifically. In fact, I'm kind of known for that. Um, and so, to have the chance to actually do something like this and to have the chance to go off now and 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 make a living uh, doing this is is really, uh, it's the most fun I've ever had. So.
2: Well, oh, yeah, I'm sure. and um you know, and I, I could tell that I mean just by reading it I, I I assume you enjoyed writing the book, although I'm sure there were times when you know, in writing what it, it doesn't probably always go smoothly from start to finish. But um, I do think, um, too, that the characters ring true. I mean it I, I think that there there's depth to each person's personality. It doesn't doesn't seem like something that's just splashed together or the people don't seem um, one-dimensional or overly stereotyped, like sometimes you see in in some of the movies that you see nowadays, where where it seems like character development is lacking. <laughs> um,
0: so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I appreciate I, I think that.
2: It's entertaining that way.
0: Really. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And I, I, one of the things that's been actually the, the best feedback that I've gotten from people, whether they're writing reviews at, at Goodreads or Amazon, or people sending me emails now, and that's actually the one thing that, that makes me feel the the best is when they say, you know, I. Uh, it w- I really I couldn't put the book down and or the, I liked the, the characters I wanted to know uh, I w- you know I cared about the characters I, I I related to them I was listening to them and I wanted to see what happened to them and that that when people tell you things like that you know you've got something uh, you've created something that, that that they're interested in that they care about and that's kind of the that's really the, the success point and that again is one of the things that just, that made me very. Um, happy about the process. The book, just very quickly, because it occurs to me that we haven't really touched on this for your audience, uh, centers around a, a, an alien first contact. It is a science fiction novel. And um, it, it, basically the, the character that you're introduced to first, which, who incidentally was originally in my first draft of the novel, was was a throwaway character. He wasn't uh, a main character at all. Uh, but he is a, a very bored young junior officer uh not entirely unlike myself at one point in my my early uh navy career uh and he has a job of monitoring space junk and one of those pieces of space junk changes course and basically the story is uh what happens after that but it's also really about threads i try to i try to have like threads going through uh that people can relate to and the thread for this particular character that you can sort of relate to from the standpoint of humanity is curiosity, and that that moment where you're uh, you you want to let go of something because you really you don't want. Uh, a lot of times things happen in life where you don't want to go. You know, I I think when I ran for Congress in uh, in 2006, as I kind of got up to that, there was a part of me that that didn't want to do it, and yet there was a part of me that had to do it. And I think everybody can relate to those moments in their lives when there's things that they don't necessarily want to do and yet they are driven, they are compelled, they can't turn away or let go. And um and I like to create those kinds of uh those kinds of moments and those things that people can relate to. And that's basically what starts the beginning of, with this one character and then all things these things happen. But but that particular character, as I mentioned, was originally a throwaway and he was supposed to just sort of disappear. But, as I said, I sort of you know I know them well, and I sort of let them hang around in my head and and he kept solving problems for me as I was trying to keep the story moving and going along and it suddenly it, i I think after a couple of chapters, I suddenly realized, oh wait, no, he's actually one of the central people here, isn't he and and that was uh, that was how he he sort of stuck- he stuck around in my head until I realized he was a main character is what happened
2: oh yeah, okay, well, I could certainly see that. I mean he does come across as a main character in the book but but I but, but maybe following the same trajectory when I first when he was first introduced in the book I I, I maybe thought he was going to be a minor character just because he wasn't right. and that the way kind of the way it was really it was kind good. of thrust the bottom.
0: <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Excellent. Well good. Yeah.
2: I guess we should – you could probably mention the name of the book. I I didn't try to because I wasn't sure I'd pronounce it right, even though it's only five years. The
0: the book is called Gopto, and it's spelled G-O-P-T-O. And for those of your uh, readers who will do me the great service of going out and purchasing and reading the book and hopefully writing a nice review uh, when they read it and love it, which, of course, I hope they will, uh, you'll have to search on G-O-P-T-O and then my name, Dwayne, D-U-A-N-E. berghard Burghard, B-U-R-G-H-A-R-D, and if you do that, it will take you right to the book. If you just search on Gopto, the name of the book, G-O-P-T-O, unfortunately, I am one letter away from GoPro, uh, and so most of the links you'll come up with on Amazon, you'd have to go quite deep to find mine. You'll find all of these GoPro things. and um, I didn't know that, of course, when I was writing the book, and uh, unfortunately, the character's name is the character's name because I asked him in my head, and that's what he told me, um, but, uh, I have spoken to the GoPro people and, and they've, uh, they've graciously agreed to change the name of all their products for me. And so, uh, I'm sure that, uh, we'll get that ironed out quickly. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, that um, is, course, well, that, is, that is of course not true, but that would be nice.
2: Uh, right. I know. I <laughs> hope people got that as a joke, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I'll put a, I'll, I'll probably put a link or where people can access and maybe on our liberal fix page as well as my own page so that people can, I usually do that for people we have on the show. And I don't know if anybody ever follows the links, but
0: I at least try. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate that. And I, and I said, it, it's certainly for, for those of your listeners who are, uh, who remember my campaign at all, or, or, uh, remember me out in the field or, are or, or just wanting to support, uh, a, a former Democratic nominee for Congress and, and writing a science fiction book. I, I greatly appreciate. The, I greatly appreciate their interest, and I, and I. But I genuinely hope that they enjoy it, and I really have been um, uh, pleasantly surprised and very, very pleased by the reception that we're getting, and, uh, and that people really seem to like it. And that's kind of the, the best thing I can say so far.
2: Yeah, and I encourage people, too, just in general, to support authors when they can. So obviously if it's somebody you know personally or somebody that shares your politics or somebody that you know on Facebook, why not shell out the 10 or 15 bucks for their book? I mean, because uh, Dwayne doesn't have the money of Ted Cruz's super PAC, so so he can't have the super PAC buy up uh, half a million Eleven, copies and distribute seriously, out Seriously, 11,000 <laughs> copies? Just, I'm
0: just thinking that... I, I'm just trying to think of the logistics of what are you going to do with all of that paper. I saw that story and I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. And I thought, man, I you know I I could have uh, I just it's, that's one of those things that I saw that story and I thought, wow, only 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 a Ted Cruz could pull something like that off. <laughs> and I commend no, the I'll New York Times for not getting sucked reader, into that, by the way. <laughs>
2: Yeah, his supporters may not be literate, so they don't buy the book. <laughs> he's yeah, a literate well, guy, but but I mean somewhere ideology has has uh, washed away most of his intelligence. I mean, from what I understand, he's a he's a bright guy, but but uh, somewhere along the way he's sold his intelligence to pander to the lowest you know- common denominator
0: it's it's funny how that's happened with so many you know it it i to not to expose myself too deeply but um and this is but this is true of many democrats frankly uh i started off in life as a Republican. and i was a i was a dorm coordinator for the college republicans in, in college and i you know i was i was one of those hardcore uh rockefeller republicans the moderate wing of the party and and through into the uh late 70s and, and early 80s this was these were relatively intelligent, sane human beings that you could work with. And and, and I think moderates in both parties uh, served at that point and um, until the, the neocons started to really divide our nation to the degree that they have. They served a vital purpose in that they were the bridge, if you will, in, in many ways, not just in terms of votes, but in terms of being able to work uh, across party lines and then go back within their own party lines and, and help come up with the support that was necessary to carve out the kinds of compromises that made for effective legislation. And I think that one of the things that's gone terribly, terribly wrong in our in our country has been the destruction, uh, frankly, of, of the middle. And I, I've often, I, I think even on the campaign trail in 06, I campaigned as sort of a radical moderate uh, in that I, I feel uh, very strongly about the importance of having that uh, that middle ground and uh, what happened, I mean, we all watched it between uh, re- really in, in 1984 was, was when, uh, when Reagan got reelected and the, the purge uh, began and the, and the neocons basically came along and you had people like Senator Chuck Percy from Illinois, uh, you, had, uh, you had the, the chafees and the Shays and, and all of these these guys that really represented these, the, the middle ground. And they were all wiped out in one cycle uh they're gone and they were gone because the republican party which at that point again was controlled by these very very conservative people that that reagan had brought in with him they cut them off at the purse strings and uh and so that was great at least temporarily for the democrats because then you had people like for example in in illinois as as an example which i'm very close to by the way because uh my dad was uh was actually a personal aide for uh, senator percy in Illinois, actually knew the senator uh, well and I uh, watched in great horror as the uh, as the RNC essentially cut him loose. Well, the Democrats were thrilled because they got Paul Simons, a very nice man, and, and a good senator. Um, but I think that in the long term, uh, losing that American middle in our body politic has done a great deal to damage us because it keeps us from being able to more effectively carve the kinds of compromises that we need. I mean, you know, uh, republics function best when we come up with solutions that, you know, nobody likes, but everybody can live with. That's kind of the essence of uh, of what compromises in, in, uh, in republics where you have a diversity of opinion, which we're always going to have. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being a conservative per se, but what's, what's wrong is when you, when you go off the deep end to the degree that, that we have now and we're, uh, this and the ideology that some that we're seeing from people like Mr. Cruz now it sort of defies all logic and it doesn't even um, it doesn't follow the sort of I don't know I, I guess the logical train of thought that conservatives used to follow even if you disagreed with them you could at least go okay I see your point of view and now you can't even do that and that's that's I think one of the things that that makes the current situation so dangerous
2: yeah and you get the sense like people like um Jack Kemp and Barry Goldwater were very conservative, but they were people who you could work with on legislation sometimes, or you might be able to reason with them and have them you know agree to certain things and now i mean <laughs> you i mean luckily in montana this year we were we we've been fortunate we were able to pass Medicaid expansion uh because there were nine Republicans that broke with their party. Um, nine moderates who who put their constituents first and actually voted with the Democrats. So in our legislature, we basically had a center left governing coalition, even though Republicans had have control of the uh, the legislature, there were enough moderates to um, uh, basically cut a deal with the Democrats or maybe cut a deal isn't the right word, but to agree with them. And, And now for their part, I'm kind of impressed that the democratic party in this state last Last year, in 2014, they made a big deal about running a Democrat in every seat in, um legislative and Senate. And that was, in some ways, that's kind of a noble goal, even though some of those candidates were absolutely certain to lose. But the uh, Democratic Party here has adopted a different strategy for 2016. They're going to essentially leave the, the Republicans who voted for Medicaid expansion alone and now run Democrats against them as sort of – a uh, tacit agreement that hey we'd rather have a moderate Republican there than a Tea Party nihilist. So you know since you guys did the state of Montana a favor by voting for health care for you know expanding Medicaid, we're we're not going to run against you. We're not going to run on party. We're going to say okay that that's effective government, and we may not agree with you on other issues, but uh, at least at least you on the most, probably most important issue of the last legislative session. Um, you voted the right way, so we're going to give you a pass. And I think that kind of thing is positive. But what I don't think is positive is if you look at what's happening in some of the states, I think the best example this week is is Maine, a place that has a tradition of sort of moderate, sensible politics. You have people like Olympia Snow and Susan Collins has kind of gone a little too far to the right as of late. But, I mean, is at least a fairly reasonable general, people, yeah. person yeah. Uh, and people like Angus King. But then now you have a governor there who who is so uh, just sort of a right-wing nihilist. I mean, he's, he's the, the Tea Party on steroids, and now he's vetoing every piece of legislation, though he isn't even vetoing it properly. So he's got 70 bills now that he hasn't signed or vetoed that he's arguing that even though the state constitution says since the legislature hasn't adjourned that those become law. If he doesn't sign them now, he's insisting that they're not law because I don't know what, you know, he's the King of Maine, I guess, but I mean, that kind of, that that kind of governance is, I don't know. It's really disturbing to see um, states like that and other states like Kansas and, you know, just falling into this, um, conservative death spiral where the people are literally incapable or unwilling to govern. And, and I think you mentioned to some extent, it's by design. They want to prove that government doesn't work. And then yes. ironically they get votes by saying that, even though they're the ones who are making it not work.
0: Yeah. I think that this is a very, uh, this is, and this is probably the most as, as somebody who, you know, uh, again, loves our, our country. And I, I, you know, loved it enough to to serve in the military and and also to run for office and all, but just generally, as as most people do, they're you know they even and again even there's a lot of Republicans that I know who who genuinely love their country and one of the most disturbing things to see going on is 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 what, is what happened in Maine, for example. This is a very I believe a very intentional uh, effort on behalf of uh, a very specific group of individuals and their design. They're very in intentional design is to break government uh it's one of the reasons that our national legislature can't get anything done they're passing the fewest bills and in, in history and uh consistently over and over they're they're breaking government you know the the bush tax cuts came along uh with unfunded wars and all these other things were at every step in every way they do everything they can to break it, and they do it so that they can then turn around and point to it and say, see, it's broken. And uh, and and there, and there are unfortunately too few people who will look and go, well, yeah, it's broken because you broke it. It was perfectly fine until you broke it. Uh, and uh, that's one of the, the, the biggest thing. That's probably the biggest threat, frankly, that, that we face right now. Uh, and they're doing that for the specific purpose of trying to dismantle the things that have made our republic work and uh it's it's frankly very frightening. Um, the thing in maine is really a is, is a very good microcosmic example because you're right I think collins and and snow and and people like that for a long time. Maine has been kind of one of those sort of oddball states um, and uh, and now you've got uh a guy who is who's literally trying to stir up a big mess. And they're, they're trying to create confusion, and uh, they're going to shout and call names and say, oh, this is this and this is that. And they're going to try to drag it into the courts and slow everything down and create dysfunction. And it's a created dysfunction. It really is. And they're doing that for the specific purpose of saying, look, you can all see it. Government's broken. And we all say, oh, government's broken. And then that becomes an excuse for some sort of extremely frightening uh, and, and far more radical change to the system, and I think that that's the thing that, uh, th- and that's frankly what you see. You don't see republics. Republics like ours generally last, frankly, you know, maybe a, a maximum of between 200 and 300 years in general, and that's kind of worth 239. So that's kind of a scary thought. Uh, and they don't generally fall from the outside. They generally fall from the inside and so you watch these kinds of trends right now in uh in government and it is it's a, it's a it's a frightening thing and i think that the only uh the only way to beat it uh is to do the sorts of things i, I think that the, the ground game that you were involved in in Arizona uh in the last cycle is a really uh, last year was a really really good example of how uh how those people who are, who are being successful at, at staving off uh, what the neoconservatives are, are attempting to do uh, are going to be successful, and hopefully uh, ultimately be uh, successful enough to, to sort of make this a dark chapter that we all remember with remorse, but but not something that, that ends up becoming you know some horrible thing that we end up saying, oh I remember the United States of America someday. So, and I that, I think that's a big part of it. I think that that sort of ground game tech the approach. You saw, uh, I think, Howard Dean came along with the the pre-DFA people, and then, of course, uh, President Obama very effectively sort of co-opted that strategy. But I think that that kind of complete and incredibly focused effort on boots on the ground game is, uh, is about the only way to survive. It's the only way we're going to survive as a nation.
2: Yeah, at this point, we're not going to outspend the Koch brothers or, or, or you know, the <laughs> big, the big money interests, no. the sort of puppet masters behind the GOP, especially behind their, their um, super PACs. And and the, I, I mean, in terms of the presidential campaigns, Hillary Clinton is probably going to outraise any individual candidate. But there's so much dark money coming in for the for the big, you know, super PACs where they don't have to disclose their money that those groups like Americans for prosperity and stuff have tons of money. But at some point I think you're right at some point it becomes sort of diminishing returns. You can only throw, whether you throw 500 million or a billion dollars at a race probably isn't decisive. You need, you need a certain amount of money to be competitive or viable or just to not get drowned out on the airwaves to at least get a message out. But beyond a certain point it becomes, I think a case of, um, person-to-person contact, talking to your neighbors, using social media, and, of course, um, doing coordinated campaigns, too, on the ground where you're actually um, canvassing or talking to people individually and encouraging them to vote. And that, that I think, works best when people canvass their neighbors. But when that isn't possible, it's probably still better to have an operative or a campaign person go there than to have nobody go there. But ideally, if people canvass their own precincts, that's going to, be the most successful, and then sometimes you can cut through the the noise and maybe talk to people individually about what's really going on, or <laughs> convince them, "Hey, this is why you know. Forget what you're seeing on the TV ads. That's not the way to make your decisions. Here's the truth, or the reality, and here's how it affects you. And you know, and that won't be successful with everybody, but it does make a difference. I, I, I'm a true believer in it and i mean nothing makes me more of a believer than having success the last cycle (laughs) you know it's a disaster around most parts of the country but i mean where we were we did really well so that that enhances my belief that it works
0: well and i think that i I think that that, i think you're exactly right but i think the places where we where the, the party was less successful uh, are places where they didn't do that nearly as effectively, or they either didn't do it or didn't do it as effectively. And uh, and also we have another, we have an issue I was just discussing with, with someone else uh, actually this morning, uh, and that is that I, we, too often we end up in this position where, yeah, uh, the idea of voting, uh, the idea of being a participant in our republic and in our democracy is, oh, you know what we'll do? we'll We'll show up and vote for president every four years. And uh, one of the things that – when I ran in in 2006, one of the things that I I absolutely screamed about the entire campaign inside the party was uh, my race was important and obviously I wanted to win, uh, but really my race wasn't where it was at. Where it was at was at that point the Missouri House, which which was not uh, nearly as red as it is now, and it was in fact probably still in reach – at that point uh, within with 2010 if we had really gotten our stuff together and really worked at it. And I kept telling everyone in the party it's all about the Missouri House because the Missouri House will be controlling the redistricting process in 2010. And the redistricting process is is incredibly important. Um, one of the things that when I ran against Kenny Hulsoff um, – in, in, in 06, one of the things that, that I noted, I, I, you know, Kenny and I ran, I thought, really a, a, a great campaign in a lot of ways. Um, Jason Rosenbaum was a reporter at that time for the Columbia Daily Tribune. Uh, he's now a reporter in, in St. Louis. And he said that on election night, he called both of us and said what a great privilege it was to, to be in a, a part of a campaign and to be reporting on a campaign that was as, uh, as, as clean and, and um and really above board as, as, uh, as ours was. And we actually did, I read later, someone sent me the link, we actually were recognized, uh, Congressman Hulsoff and I were recognized as having the cleanest competitive race in the United States in the 06 cycle. And um, and that was that was very important to me, and I, I, it's one of those things that I kind of hang my hat on. But in that process of running, I never did talk about, I never said Kenny Hulsoff thinks or, you know, what he thinks or does i I talked about his voting record i talked about his actions but i didn't say you, you don't make it personal in that way but to get back to redistricting about that when he was first elected uh in the ninth district the ninth district was drawn quite differently and he had to uh behave in a way that was um, far more moderate. And if you look at his voting record in the first two terms that he was congressman, he voted the same way as the majority of Democrats about 33% of the time, which for a Republican is not bad. That's, that's, that, that shows you that he's having to protect his left flank, if you will. And then the 2000 election comes along and the ninth district is redrawn in such a way uh, that makes it far safer uh, for a Republican and from that point forward, he votes with the majority of Democrats less than 4% of the time. And that, again, and that, that shows, that right there shows you the danger of gerrymandering. But it also shows the importance of having the state legislatures, uh, particularly in states like Missouri, where we don't have an independent commission, and, and those that's where the maps are, are drawn up. And so I was very, very vocal uh, and and fighting really hard in a lot of down ballot races as well as my own in 2006. And um, one of the things that I was most grateful for are uh, uh, both of our former governor uh, Jay Nixon, who is a, a personal friend and someone I uh, I'm proud to have as a as a personal friend by the way, and and uh, certainly proud of of his actions in this last week with respect to the Supreme Court decision on marriage equality. Uh, but uh, Governor Nixon had uh, given me a great deal of credit for assisting uh, several of the down-ballot races in 06, and I did that, and, that was a, and I was grateful to be recognized for that, but that was a very, very important thing to me when I ran because I understood that those races were were at least, if not more important uh, than uh, than my own because they were part of the bigger picture, and I think that that's one of the things that we've we face in the party right now is that there's an insufficient recognition amongst, um, I think, rank-and-file party members and just, frankly, participants, just you know, Democrats out in the world, um, understanding that it, it is. It's about school boards. It is about city councils. It is about the state house. It, it, those, those races are incredibly important, and they really do have a long-term macro effect on the big stuff. And so it's it's great to vote for president, but you've got to you've got to be out there, and you've got to be voting in all of those other races too, because they all add up, and they have a frankly a, a, a much more dramatic and direct impact on your everyday life. Absolutely, and one of the things
2: Naomi and I have both discussed on this show quite a few times is that is. I guess it's sort of an irony that people pay the most attention to the presidential race, but in very many ways, it's the city council race or the school board race or the state rep race locally where their vote is going to have the most impact and where – Just the mere effort of going and talking to their neighbors. I mean, in a city council race, like in a city like Columbia, Missouri, if you can swing 60 or 70 votes, which just about anybody could do with a little effort, you can can win a race. You can't, you know, I can swing 60 or 70 votes in the presidential race um, nationally, and that's not going to make a difference. It's certainly, you know, it's not even going to make a difference in Montana, but but what people can do locally can make a difference. And it's not that the presidential race isn't an, isn't important. Of course it's important who's at the top of the ticket, but but so many people ignore all the, you know, so much damage right now is being done at the state level. The federal level, is, right. the federal government for the most part is at an impasse where they're not really doing any good, but they're not doing any harm. But in the states where, where especially where they have, uh, Republican-controlled legislatures of both houses and the governor's office and the secretary of state, you know, and the attorney general. I mean, the Republicans can, can pass their entire agenda and run roughshod over over um, state budgets and, and cut funding for schools. I guess Arizona is a good example of that. Other states that we've mentioned before, like Kansas, I mean, they're doing untold damage. Even Wisconsin, a Midwest state that should be a blue state or at least a swing state right now, Republicans in Wisconsin, and for that matter, Michigan, are calling all the shots. So they're doing all kinds of damage. And it's because, sure, in the presidential year, both Wisconsin and Michigan went for Obama twice, but but a lot of Democrats sat at home during the midterm so, so the Republicans can do what they want. And they lost they the
0: governorship. The state level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's interesting. I, you know, it's, uh, one of the things about being in business, uh, as I was both before and after my Congressional runs is that uh, we had a a large multi-state corporation and a, and a large uh, operations actually in in the two States you just mentioned, Michigan, where I actually happen to be this evening uh, and, uh, and Wisconsin. And we had multiple stores in both of those States. And so uh, as a matter of course, I I'm not unfamiliar with the politics in both places and you're absolutely right. Those are places where that's where you should see a lot more blue and you don't because, uh these uh, the the statewide races are not uh the governor's race and the legislatures are are not being are are not being paid attention to I wanted to go back though for just a moment you mentioned the the schools in arizona and that is something that was really interesting coming from uh coming from the north suburbs of chicago which is where i'm originally from uh, i'm a i'm actually a a Trier graduate uh and uh and then living in central missouri for for thirty years and then uh, being out now in, uh, in Tucson, when I moved to Arizona, I did not – one of the things that was, I thought was really cool going there was that a number of the very – in the United States, uh, by U.S. News and World Report rankings, by Washington Post rankings, by all the people who rank high schools nationally, a number of them are in Arizona. And in fact, a couple of them are in Tucson. Uh, and I thought that was incredibly cool. What I didn't realize was how the how the state's education system was functioning in this sort of um, the, the way and, and, and what was causing that disparity. And as I sort of looked into it, I learned a great deal. Um, everybody knows that we have an education system that's based on the property tax. And when you do that, you have rich neighborhoods have better schools because they have higher property taxes and they have more – uh, they have more revenue, and, and they can uh, afford to build, maintain uh, better schools with better teachers and better resources, et cetera. That's not any great shock. What's happened in Arizona is really interesting with this with this thing of open enrollment, which is another one of these sort of weird Orwellian neoconservative ideas that you can sell to people uh, who are not paying attention, who are not particularly informed, because it's, it's one of those things that sounds really good when you describe it. Uh, and it's, oh, yeah, that's uh, – it's it's one of those it, it sounds very intuitive, that sounds like a good idea, but then in actual practice when you see it working, you start to see that, oh my gosh, this is really a terrible idea. And what happens is that um you create magnets of smart people. And so you have these few areas where you have all the really smart kids and you create frankly then intellectual deserts outside of these zones and um, the best way to describe it is to look at say the state of Arizona's high schools uh and their national rankings, and you'll look at again uh what four of the top ten high schools in the United States are in arizona um and the two of them are basic schools and there's there's u high and then there's the the Gilbert academy of that's up in in um phoenix um but then if you go down the list, and, and those are obviously, I believe they're like one, two, three, and 4 when you look at them, when you look at the rankings inside that state. By the time you get down to the 11th ranked school in the state and you look at their national ranking, uh, you're looking at them in the uh, 900s. And if you go down to like the 20th, you're now in the 2000s. And so what happens is you have this, this cataclysmic drop-off. Uh, and if you look and and if you look at other if you look at other states like say Illinois um or uh, and Illinois is actually a really good example or even Missouri um they may not have schools that are ranked as uh as highly they don't have any their top ranked school may be in the you know the 300 or something like that nationally but as you go down the list you will find that there's a sort of proportional fall as you go down from 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 and you look at the list of the 32,000 high schools in the United States. That those numbers are 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 relatively proportional as you go down and uh, through it. I, I'm not sure if I'm making enough sense. If, you, if you're able to follow, this, your audience is able to follow this, but it's yeah, really I, actually a very I, it's a very important problem, and it's something that it, it, and it's happened in Arizona because it sounded like a good idea, and it's really turned out to be a really awful idea, unless you happen to be one of the – essentially one of the 1%. Um, and, and when yeah, you think exactly about how – go ahead. The comparison I was thinking is essentially they're
2: they're creating schools for the 1%, but instead of a yeah. normal sort of distribution where you have, oh, say 50% of the schools above average and 50% below and sort of a bell curve, what you have in Arizona, if I understand correctly, is basically you have four schools that are – Top notch. So you have one percent there, but the other ninety nine percent of the schools might be all subpar, or maybe not all ninety nine percent, but say seventy percent of them are below average, and you know, and so, right, just, so you really have sort of elite plus, you're right at the top. Yep. Right.
0: And so that's kind of it's one of those things, and it's, it's interesting. You know, you go to each new place, and um, it's funny. I I I left Missouri obviously for for health reasons. Uh, but um I, I i left a purple state that's getting redder uh and i moved to a purple state that's getting bluer um and uh it's but it but either way when you look at the when you look at the politics uh in each state it's it is and and what's happening at all levels um it is it's fascinating
2: absolutely and you know and i have hope for arizona over the next couple election cycles um uh, one thing I wanted to maybe mention nationally, I think that um, because the immigration issue has become so hot-button, and in, in many ways I think the American people are are at a good position on, on their ideas about immigration, but I have a feeling that some of that may slip away with Donald Trump sort of getting a high profile and, and introducing the know-nothing populism of almost 19th century thought on immigration with his comments about um Basically equating all people across the southern border as being rapists and stuff, and, and um, I think that makes him not a very attractive candidate in terms of winning a national election. But in a multi-candidate uh, GOP field, it by sort of being the loudest voice in the room, and instead of talking with dog whistles, using a foghorn to talk racism, he's he's vaulted to the top of the Republican field, not because he's extremely popular risk because with so many candidates 15 or 20 percent of the vote makes you first <laughs> so,
0: well there's a couple of you things you doing
2: i think go ahead oh yeah how do you think that'll play out and what do you think of the trump phenomenon and is this uh a short-term thing or is he going to be around uh for a long time in this race
0: well you would think that uh, with everything that's cost him so far that he might just jump back out but there was an article this week that said no he's doubling down and. And obviously, if you're a Democrat, that's good news for you, because you want him, frankly, in, in what a lot of people call the clown car. Uh, and you want him in that. It, to, to, to paraphrase Jack Nicholson, you, you want him in that field. You need him in that field. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that he does say things like this that, uh, that frankly, disaffect uh, large swaths of the American public. And they and they, in, in a very direct way, they tarnish the overall GOP brand as well, Uh, But on the other side of that, uh, he is the only person in the Republican field who is out there actively attacking um, other Republicans. And if you are a Democrat, what you want, frankly, and this is, again, not speaking as a Democrat or Republican, but if I'm just a political operative, if I'm kind of a James Carville guy and I'm looking at it from a very apolitical point of view, I would say that if you're a Democrat, what you want is you want the most divisive, uh expensive and bloody primary process you can pro- you can possibly get and uh on the other side and frankly donald trump makes that uh makes that happen for you um so on so on the one hand having him out there is is a good thing I think that one thing that there' a lot of people are not uh getting and they're not understanding and I want to say it was the um the Christian Science monitor that did this that had a report on him the other day it was either that or Bloomberg one of those places on the Internet, and I saw it, uh, that Trump has been shanghaiing basically every operative. He's been stealing people left, right, and center from several of the Koch brothers' operations, and he has been buying up offices in New Hampshire, and he is building a very efficient ground game up there, and that's when, and he has a ton of money. And if he does that, he becomes, I think, genuinely dangerous to – Uh, to the mainstream what's left of the mainstream republicans although the mainstream of the republican party is now also so far off to the right but he becomes quite dangerous to them because he can be uh, divisive and he will tarnish the brand and he will uh, disaffect uh, and and, uh, push away a lot of voters and i think that um, with that said with with respect to the, the comment regarding latino voters on the one hand there is a point where it goes too far, and I think that no matter what, you have to not just be critical of him, but you have to say that, wow, he really shouldn't be part of this debate because he's not hes not just hurting the Republican Party. There comes a point where, you're, where your remarks are so insensitive and, and so awful that you're actually you're, you're hurting America, too. And, and, and I think we're probably very near if we haven't gone uh, over that point. But at the same time, there was another uh, story just, I think it was today, that noted that, not a single GOP candidate is going to go to the largest meeting of Latino voters in the United States, and I think you know. And my comment on Facebook, I think you saw, was, "Gee, what what better way to show people that you that you care about them and, and their vote by than by not showing up, by not literally sending a single person uh, to to talk?" But 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 that said, I think a lot of it, and of course, I now live in Tucson, so I live 19 miles from the border, and we certainly do have border issues uh, in in Arizona, and there are a lot of people who feel very strongly about that, and and um, and I think that our, our immigration policy needs uh, needs reform in in a lot of ways, but at the same time, I think that many people, and including Republicans, certainly um, in in our area. Uh, have a much more moderate um, opinion about immigration issues in general and also have, frankly, a far better impression and experience uh, with people coming and going across the Mexican border, uh, at least in in, in our area. And maybe uh, maybe there are other areas where it's, it's more problematic, but in the two years that I've lived in Tucson, I've actually been quite pleasantly surprised by how Excuse me. How it isn't nearly as divisive and explosive an issue uh, in our area as I as I kind of anticipated that it might be when when we moved there. So, but with respect to Trump, you know, again, uh, as somebody who's supporting the Democrats, you got to love him that he's there, and you got to really hope he stays in and, and messes things up for the other side. But yes, there does come a point where, good lord, I mean, you know, there's there's a there's a limit to just how much stupid we can handle, uh, and we're, we're probably close to that limit.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and In some ways, uh, Trump, to me, reminds me a little bit of the Frankenstein monster in the sense that sort of the mad scientists in the GOP lab who tried to appeal to, um, I guess for lack of a better word, or sort of angry, old, anxious white voters. They have drummed up a lot of sort of anti-immigrant fervor or... Uh, imbecile populism, or whatever you want to call it, and and Trump is Trump is saying sort of the same things that Ted Cruz and other people are, but he says it unfiltered. So in some ways, he's the Republican id. But the problem is they've sort of fostered that kind of anxiety in voters. So now when Trump says it in the Republican primaries with hardcore Tea Party voters, it becomes a popular to say i mean and so then they, they those some of those voters just think oh people like jeb bush and and scott walker and stuff are just being politically correct if they don't just come out and say it so trump's the only one speaking their language and so it does make him dangerous but if but i agree with you i think for the democrats it's a good thing because a, a matchup between hillary clinton and donald trump is no contest because the independents what? are going to vote overwhelmingly for clinton and and i think the republicans have a big problem on their hand because like you mentioned donald trump has bought off a whole bunch of americans for prosperity people that were working for the coke brothers uh, the americans for prosperity um super PAC. but i think trump offered them more money so they've gone away from that so but when money is your lowest common denominator and somebody pays more it kind of fits in that they would work for him but it does mean that he ha- he actually has the largest ground game of any presidential candidate in terms of field operations uh, aside from Hillary Clinton. I mean, we do hear a lot about Bernie Sanders and he's drummed up a lot of support, but Clinton actually has the largest ground game of any candidate even yeah. though it's, you know, they don't tout it as much and then Donald Trump's is second. So, I mean, that may mean that he if he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, look out, they're going to have a hard time putting him down and South Carolina or Nevada, and since he's got a big ego, if he does decide to stay in the race, and and right now it seems like he will, but you never know because I've heard he also doesn't want to really release the long form of his financial statement because he might not be as rich as he boasts that he is. <laughs> and so you know, there's all well, kinds kind of, of stuff of going on with him. But if his ego is big enough to think he can win, and if he starts winning some victories, he won't go away quietly. I mean, he's not the kind of person that you can. Talk to behind closed doors and say, "For the good of the party we we need you to step aside. I mean he's going to go all the way to the end if he decides to go for it.
0: yeah, I think you're right. I think if he does well enough in the in the early states, then you're looking at him on the podium at the at the um at the at the convention in Ohio, and I think that that's a that's a genuine issue i I don't think anybody thinks he's going to come away with the nomination i i just I just don't think anybody thinks that's a realistic possibility, but as you say. That doesn't matter; he can still cause an awful lot of damage and 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 obviously, I think that that's something that they're they're worried about um on the democrat side, I think it's a much more interesting play right now. i think that uh I don't think there's a single person out there that that doesn't really like bernie sanders um i don't i i, I literally i can't i i've I've looked in both parties i can't find anybody who doesn't like the guy personally uh and I actually have a friend of mine, a fellow apple dealer uh who um who knows him personally and says, gosh, he's the most genuine human, you know, he's just really great and I'm sure he is. Um my my issue as you as you noted is that uh and he's drawing great crowds and that's all that's all well and good, but what he doesn't have is he doesn't have the organization, uh he doesn't have the ground game, he doesn't have the infrastructure. And those are things that you can't just put together. You know, they go, well, he has the same numbers that Barack Obama had at the same point as in the season of eight race. No, no, he does not. And President Obama had, uh, and he may have poll numbers that are the same. He may have. There may be some similarities in their campaigns, but in terms of the infrastructure and organizational look at the two campaigns, uh, President Obama had a substantial uh, advantage in infrastructure and organization, and that is what really what it really comes down to. I'll tell you the. the, the uh, the candidacy that really grabbed my attention, though, was Jim Webb uh, throwing his hat in on the Democrat side, and I think that that was um, very specific uh, to uh, to try to draw. Frankly, I think he's kind of announced, if you, if you will, Jim Webb has announced that he's running for vice president, um, and I, I think that that was that's exactly what that's going to be about, and I think that's very important because the Republicans aren't stupid. Uh, there are a lot of things, but stupid isn't, isn't one of them when it comes to trying to win elections. And They know that there isn't a single path to victory. If you look at Nate Silver's numbers, if you look at the poll numbers, you really study it. There's not a single path to victory that they have in 2016 that does not include their winning Ohio. If they lose Ohio, it's over. Hillary Clinton or a beer can running as a Democrat, doesn't matter. Any Democrat will beat any Republican if they can't win Ohio. That's it. Which is why they're already planning to have their convention in Ohio, which is why they're grooming Kasich to be their vice presidential pick for whoever the heck the nominee is. They need Ohio. Hillary Clinton or whoever the Democratic nominee is does not have to have Ohio to win. If they do get it, it's over. They win. It's an early night. But they don't have to. But one of the little, if you look at the sort of potential electoral maps that Silver's already started, I think, drawing up, but if not, he certainly we've seen you know the numbers show uh and that is that you look at one of the states that that a democrat would have to take if we lose ohio and we probably we very easily could under these circumstances and one of those is virginia and having jim webb on your ticket would not necessarily guarantee virginia but it would certainly make virginia uh the democrats to lose it would definitely make it lean blue uh, there's there's no question. And so I think that there's a lot of that sort of, it's interesting to me to watch that kind of jockeying going on right now because a lot of people don't seem to understand how, you know, how died in the, there are going to be billions of dollars spent and there's going to be lots of people talking, we talk about issues and this and that and the other thing. And really the demographics are such that most of the states and most of the electoral college vote is essentially over. No matter what you do, uh, it's not going to be enough to change enough votes to make most of the states change between now and election day of next year. So what it really comes down to is those few states where you can change and, and you know, how you're going to get to 270. And that, to me, yeah. um, I, I love to hear people talk about other stuff, but the bottom line is when you're talking about the race to the White House, you're talking about 270 electoral votes, and that is literally the only number that matters.
2: Yeah, and at some level you're right. I mean the election is essentially um the, the so uh, pivot or tipping point states are essentially either gonna be Florida, Ohio, Virginia, and Colorado. I mean that those you know
1: <laughs> those exactly. are the four states that decide the election.
2: Maybe a couple others, Iowa, Wisconsin. I mean, you know, there's lots of states that could be on the tipping points, but, but, but it really does come down to winning a few um pivotal swing states that and, carry a and a wild road road. You wild know,
0: Arizona could I, you and I both believe we were talking about this before the show you and I both believe that it's not going to be until 2020 if you look at the demographics that that Arizona will probably stay red in 2016 but it could go blue and certainly in 2020 it should and it's going to stay that way for a long time but, um, but you could see something flip like that but I'll tell you but for all of your listeners that are living in the state of Ohio or one of those other states that's going to be one of those battlegrounds uh, just right now um, stop watching television, just <laughs> do whatever you can, maybe throw it out, I don't know, to stop paying your cable bill, whatever you're going to do, because it's just going to be, I promise you, it's going to be an ugly time, and I, I feel for you. Um, I can recommend a really great science fiction novel to, to curl up uh, on, on a couch and read, um, but you're you're definitely not going to want to be uh, watching the wall-to-wall um political stuff that's going to be happening and and the trees that will be killed and and stuffed into your mailbox uh over the over over the course of the next year and and four months
2: very true and wow um we it looks like we've used a whole hour of time so it's great a pleasure having you on as a guest um on our archive archive version it should go all the way through till we finish uh the live people might have Actually got cut off because I think we're at about 61 minutes, but uh, most of our listeners listen archived, anyways. Um, but but I wanted to thank you again so much for um, for uh, sharing your insight with us, and I want to encourage our listeners too to to go out and buy his book and, and read it too. I mean, <laughs> but buy it at least, you know, uh, we, since uh, he can't do the Ted Cruz thing, there is no super PAC to buy up those books. So it'd be better if it gets in the hands of no, i I'm, I'm, I'm relying it, on, but... I'm
0: relying on grassroots science fiction Democrats. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right. Grassroots science fiction Democrats, of which I'm sure there are many. Um, I'm uh, sure. so, uh, Yeah. Thank you again uh, for joining us and we'll have to have you again, maybe on the show Uh, some other time maybe when you write your next book maybe sooner but uh, um, it was a pleasure pleasure uh, talking with you Uh, I think a great interview and and you had plenty plenty of insights and and really uh, a joy to have you as a friend and to have you on the show and so I hope you have a great weekend as well
0: thanks Keith I really appreciate being on the show I'll come back anytime thanks very much have a great night
2: sounds good you too
0: thank you so much
1: Snoop Dogg, recovering. Yesterday, I ate turkey stuffing, cranberries, the real kind, not those jiggly cranberries, mashed potatoes, gravy, carrots, apple pie, blueberry pie, and pumpkin pie. What can I say? I'm a pie guy. But I'm not planning on sitting around today, because today is the last chance to get 50% off of everything at Old Navy, except gift cards, of course. That's right. Old Navy is giving you another reason to believe in this holiday season, 50% off of the entire store. So run to Old Navy today. Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.